0: Good afternoon. Uh, I hope you're doing well. At home, uh, as Darren and Jesus said, we are so sad that you're not here with us, but so glad that we can still meet this way. And uh, this afternoon, we're going to continue and actually finish our preaching series in the parables of Jesus, looking at the story we've just been told. And uh, I'm pretty certain that I can't top that video, so please be patient with me as I try. (laughs) Um, But the the Grenfell Tower scandal uh, has been in the news again recently. You may have have heard or or watched this recently that the kind of investigation into why this flammable cladding was used was uh, concluded, and the conclusion was damning. Uh, Negligence, buck-passing, penny-scrimping, apathy. The story of Grenfell Tower is the story of people cutting corners at the cost of of dozens of human lives. It is a tragic story of a building project gone horribly, horribly wrong. But unfortunately, it is also an ancient story. Jesus picks up on this story of people cutting corners when they build in His ministry. What we call the parable of the two builders, we could maybe also call it the parable of the two houses, is a really simple, short, three-verse story about two men... each embark on a building project. One of them does the right thing, builds everything to code, and the other one cuts corners. And so Jesus will take this classic kind of tale and twist it and project it onto our spiritual lives. And this afternoon, let's ask the question together, what are we building on? Are the lives that we're building firm and structurally sound, or are they a tragedy waiting to happen? I'm going to pass to Charlotte, one of our uh, brilliant students, who's going to read this passage from Matthew 7 for us.
1: Hello, I'm Charlotte. I'm at second year at Glasgow Uni and I'm reading today's passage. So it's Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But to anyone who hears these words of mine, and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." Lord, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for church that we can still come together in this time online, Lord. And yeah, I just want to pray for Lewis as he speaks. I ask, Lord, that you'll give him wisdom and the word to say, and yeah, you'll just be with him, Lord. And I ask, the Lord, as a church, that we'll prepare, open our hearts and prepare our hearts to what he has to say, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen.
0: Amen. Man, thanks for that, Charlotte. Well, if you've ever been at pre-COVID or for that like one month sweet spot in the summer, if you've ever been in our flat, uh, you'll probably have seen our squinty bookcase. So when we moved in, uh, we put our bookcase against the back wall of our living room. I filled it with books and then realized it's like a, a 20 degree angle off the wall. And uh, we've been living on the edge of safety for a few years now because I'm too lazy to unload it and move it. Um, but you know, if we had a baby on the way, I don't want you to think I'm irresponsible. If we had a baby on the way, I would secure it to the wall. I'm not inviting disaster. If Scotland was susceptible to earthquakes, that thing would be getting secured pronto. Because when things are good and we know that bad could be coming, we we prepare, right? We, We secure the bookcase to the wall in case our baby tries to climb it. For Abby and I, it's easy to leave it unsecured because we are pretty confident it will be fine. Abby doesn't tend to go climbing on our furniture too often, so it will probably be fine. But Jesus describes a similar situation. Should I prepare for a coming disaster with much, much higher stakes? Let's set the scene of the story that Jesus tells. You're a resident of ancient Israel. You You're building a new house. It's the middle of summer. The sun is at 12 o'clock in the sky. It's beating down on your head. You know that you need to dig in. And remember, this is before industrial diggers. So you're you're spade in hand, dig in the foundations of your house. But when you go to break ground, you find that the clay underneath your foot is like this. It's hard and rocky and solid. And you begin to realize that you have two options. Either you push through the heat and the hard bronze clay to get to the solid rock underneath, or you just plonk your house down on the sand and hope for the best. In our story, one builder digs deep, he gets underneath the clay and he builds his house on a foundation stone. The other one gets complacent and just builds on the ground. One drills his bookcase to the wall And the other one has it tipping like this right on the edge of crushing someone. This is a really common scenario in the kind of Palestinian area of the world. Uh, Unlike the video, which was great, Jesus isn't talking about a beach and a mountain. He's talking about the kind of bronze hard clay on the ground. That this problem would always happen for builders. They'd build in the summer. And come winter, the ground was different. It was muddy and soft and horrible to build on. And in fact, in August 1991, a high-rise apartment complex in Jerusalem kind of collapsed, and about 30 families lost their homes and had to evacuate. And when an architect carried out a report on the collapse, they found that what had happened is when they were digging the foundations, they hadn't gone deep enough. So they'd built on this stuff that seemed hard in the summer, Come the winter, the winds and the rain came and the building collapsed. And we'll get to that storm as we move through the story. But a bit of context just now makes us aware that the choice that the builders faced wasn't just do they know how to build. Any builder worth their salt is going to build on something hard. It's actually are they willing to make a commitment now to make their house secure in the future? Are they willing to prepare in the summer for what will come in the winter? And Jesus takes this really simple decision. Do I build down to the foundation stone or do I just plonk my house on the sand? And he compares it to two people. Somebody who hears Jesus speak and then goes away and does nothing. And someone who hears Jesus speak and has his life changed. many of you know the story of my kind of coming to be a follower of Jesus. And for a long time before I actually kind of reached the line of faith, uh, God was working on me. And there was an evening, uh, about a year and a half before I came to faith, when uh, I was about 18, I'd been at a friend's house, getting high, and I came home stuck on Fight Club, the movie. And uh, if you've seen it, you'll know that about an hour in, there's a scene of a ticking clock, and the narrator says over it, this is your life. And it's ending one minute at a time. And um, being still slightly high, I sat up in bed, absolutely shock horror, terrified. Uh, it was like this lightning bolt. Like, I, I know I'm going to die, but now he's said it. My life is not infinite, and I know that I'm wasting it. See, in that moment, I had heard something true question is, I jolted upright in bed, full of panic. Wasn't, did I hear, was the TV loud enough? No, it was, what am I going to do about it? So, in my case, just struck by this fear, I, I kind of left all these bad habits behind, and I actually became a Buddhist, which is a different story altogether but the incident kind of illustrates this difference between hearing and doing. I'd seen Fight Club many times, but suddenly the truth of my mortality just gripped me by the scruff of the neck. See, Jesus isn't talking about just intellectual agreement with the Christian faith. He's not saying those who hear my word and agree with it are like a man who builds their house on the the rock. No, he's talking about the moment when we hear God's Word, when we read the Bible or or hear the good news about Jesus, and it grabs us by the scruff of the neck, changes our lives forever. To come back to the parable, when we are confronted by the words of Jesus, do we make like the wise man, roll up our sleeves, pick up a shovel and dig in, or do we ignore him, hoping that the worst won't happen? We've been in the parables of Jesus for six, seven weeks now, and this parable is a fitting end to our series because as we read it, we look backwards and begin to ask ourselves, how have I been hearing Jesus? When Jesus has spoken the last six, seven weeks, have we listened and then just moved on, or have we really sat up, taken notice, and changed? The video alluded to it for the kids with all the kind of hearers with their mouths wide open, amazed at the way that Jesus taught. Verse 29 in our passage says that those who had just heard the Sermon on the Mount, quote, marveled at his teaching, for he taught with authority. In other words, Jesus' teaching grabbed them by the scruff of the neck. Question for us to ponder. If we were there on the mountain that day and Matthew was able to peer into your heart, could he have said the same thing about you, that you are amazed at his teaching because he teaches with authority? Or would he have wrote, some of them liked his teaching but kind of took it with a pinch of salt and then had to hurry off to make dinner because it's already 10 past five. Which would it be? there's something more going on in this passage than just a call to kind of digging in before the storm comes that's good wisdom to prepare in advance but jesus is saying more than that and in fact he's probably referring to a passage from isaiah 28 uh, 16 through 18 here's what that passage says it says see i lay a stone in zion and this is god speaking a tested stone a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be a knowledge. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. These words which are about God vindicating Israel, finally rescuing His people from those who would oppress them, become so central to Israel's self-understanding that they actually, at the time of Jesus, started to think about the cornerstone in this passage of Isaiah as being the stone in the center of the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, the temple was the great hope of Israel, the brick and mortar like summary Of the faithfulness of God and every Jew at this time who's at the bottom of the mountain listening to Jesus preach would have immediately thought about the temple when Jesus says about the foundation stone and when they think of the temple when a Jew thinks about the temple in Jerusalem they think about the intersection of heaven and earth the place where God Almighty dwells in a city on earth They viewed it as the kind of snapshot of a future coming world that would one day be. And so what can seem like a kind of innocuous children's story about being a good person, actually when we dig in, turns to be about something much more profound altogether. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple. He is the very presence of God himself walking among us. This isn't just a nice story, as though Jesus stands up and declares, I am the foundation stone. I am the embodiment of God's presence walking among you. I am a snapshot of the world that will one day be. Now, in case we've been in church too long and that doesn't seem as audacious as it should, imagine that you went to a TED Talk In fact, a TEDx talk, not even the the big-time global version, just a local TEDx talk. And a joiner gets up, and he starts kind of giving a a talk about the, the moral lessons he's learned through his life. And it's good stuff. It's fine. But at the end, he says, hey, just before you go, I just want to remind you I'm God. And if you don't do exactly what I say, if you don't love me and obey me and trust everything I say, then just so you know, you will be swept away. Okay, have a good evening. That would be arrogant, self-important, delusional. Like that guy deserves to be locked up unless he's telling the truth. And this short parable that Jesus tells puts a stake through the heart of the idea that we can take Jesus as a a lovely, nice, TED-talky teacher, but not take him as God of the universe. C.S. Lewis famously framed it this way Jesus is either a liar, in which case, don't listen to him, or he's a lunatic, in which case, don't listen to him, or he was right and he is Lord of the universe, in which case, you had better listen to him. Those are the three options liar, lunatic, or Lord. We cannot take him as a nice philosopher. We can only take him as a liar. Or the king of all things. How do you take Jesus when you hear his words in the Bible? Do you take him as a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? You don't get another option. If those are the only options, then we're not talking about two classes of Christians, right? Somebody who does and somebody who just hears are not two types of Christians. It's not, all. Oh, some of us aren't that serious, and some of us are amazing saints who, who just serve all the time and are wonderful. We're actually talking about the very core of what it means to be a believer. If I said to you that I have faith in this pew down here, and then you asked me to sit on it, and I said, well, I don't know, just take my word for it. I do. I, I, I know that it would hold me. My actions would probably cast doubt on whether I actually believe that the chair can hold me. My sitting in the pew is the direct result of my trust in the pew, functioning as a pew. So when we hear the words of Jesus, who says he is Lord, we don't get to stop at just acknowledging his wisdom. Just saying like, I just like some of the things Jesus says. We're actually called to go through that place to genuinely trust his wisdom. To sit on the chair, so to speak, to put our whole being on the person of Jesus, to trust his authority as the one who made all things, and to enter into a committed, loving, wholehearted, abundant life with him in his kingdom. I wonder if you've ever played the game Empires. It's a classic grace community game. Everyone in the room picks a, a famous person or a kind of fictional character, and one at a time, you go around the room kind of guessing who chose who. All the names are in a hat. So, for example, if I chose Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, I'm guessing lots of people write. those people join my team, and then we form an empire, and together we try and guess everyone else. So, if we're halfway through and I have a, an empire of 10 people, and it's somebody else in the room guesses that I chose Leonardo DiCaprio, suddenly I'm no longer the boss. Me and my whole empire join the empire of the one who guessed correctly. I had all these people underneath me, but suddenly I'm not working for myself anymore. I go from one second frantically trying to guess all these identities out there to joining someone else's team and giving everything I've got for their empire to become a Christian, is to do something similar, to place our allegiance into a new kingdom, to have a new king, not just to have a new worldview, but to put our full identity into the kingdom of God. Now, the earliest Christians, you read the Bible, they, they definitely didn't view this as something for super-Christians. The Apostle Peter was there on the mountain that day and he writes this to one of the earliest churches. He says that everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us. To God. In other words, there is nothing that can get in the way of you following and loving and obeying Jesus. God has not set you up for failure. To be a Christian is to look at Jesus and say, I will follow you wherever you go. Have we done that? Do we hear the words of Jesus and build our lives on them? Or do we hear his words? and go to church once a week for insurance. Do you know that that Israelite summer, two houses would have been erected and they would have looked exactly the same. If you came along to this town, you would not have known that underneath one was solid and the other one was crumbling. Both are at home living comfortably and if the story ends here, then it's a terrible, terrible story. But the rain is coming only a storm that knocks down a house will reveal what's underneath the houses and so like any good storyteller jesus sends a storm a few years ago a hurricane battered mexico beach in florida and a picture should come up on your screen just now of the wreckage from that hurricane but slap bang in the middle of the town There's this one single house that just stood intact. And when the news came to report on the storm, they interviewed the architect of this house and they asked him why the house was so resilient. Here's what he said. He said, at every point, from the pilings to the roof and everything in between, when it came time to make a decision about what level of material or what to use, we didn't even pay attention to code. We went above and beyond the code. And we asked the question, what would survive the big one? And we consistently tried to build it for that. What would survive the big one? Jesus turns the focus of his, of his parable from the two builders to the storm that comes. Nothing more can be done. The storm is on the horizon. The houses have been built. It's too late to make a change. All we can do is sit and watch what happens, and to nobody's surprise, the house built on rock stands, and the house built on the clay or the sand falls. What would survive the big one? Now, we've just looked at Jesus' call on us to build a life on Him, But what is he talking about when he says a storm is coming? I think that we read this and often think he's talking about the storms of life, the the difficulties that we'll face as people in this world. And that's certainly true that in Jesus we can withstand the difficulties of this life. But I actually think that what Jesus is talking about is what our uh, Mexico Beach architect called the big one. The big storm coming at the end, the storm that we live our whole lives pretending isn't coming. Death and judgment. I say that because this parable is a kind of part of a series of short parables that Jesus kind of uh, gives to close the Sermon on the Mount. And they're essentially all saying this, if you follow me, you will live. And if you don't, then you are inviting death in. Jesus says, take the narrow path that leads to life not the wide and meandering and lovely road that leads right off a cliff. We need to reckon together with the reality of God's judgment. It's fashionable today to to just write this off to context, to say, well, Jesus wasn't really talking about God's anger, but if we will take God at his word, if we will look at the words of the Bible and believe them, and we cannot escape the conclusion that judgment is a reality of life. The book of Hebrews puts it this simply. It says, man is appointed to die once and then to face judgment. Let's not lie to one another. This is a difficult thing to come to terms with for us. But the reality is that this is good news for the world and yet bad news for individuals. Let me explain what I mean. If you know me well, you know that I'm utterly obsessed with coffee, do anything for a good cup. Was gutted last Saturday when I met Charlie Wall uh, to go for a walk and get a coffee from it. All started here, just up the road, best coffee in Glasgow, and it was shut. It was the only reason I met him for a walk, and it was shut. But in second year of uni, I had this crazy idea, like, I'm just going to start roasting my own coffee. I got talking to this guy in a haymarket station in Edinburgh, and he was talking to me about where to buy kind of unroasted beans and all this kind of stuff. Uh, But I had no money. So I bought a popcorn popper, plugged it in in our garage, and started roasting like 20 beans at a time. And it didn't go well. It tasted of grass, and it was horrible, and I wasted a lot of money And It is what it is. But along the way, I learned some lessons. And one of the lessons was that a big step of roasting coffee is that once you've roasted it, you have to kind of shake it off, get the chaff out of the beans. And so you put your coffee in something like a colander and you shake it away and it cools them down. And at the same time, this white, chaffy stuff flies everywhere and you're left with just beans. Now, a common metaphor in the Bible for God's judgment is something similar. It's the shaking off. Of the excess, the separating of wheat from chaff or bean from chaff. Now, like me standing at my kitchen balcony and shaking my dreadful coffee beans, God will shake off the world, shake off the things that don't belong in a good and redeemed world. Chaff doesn't belong in a cup of coffee and sin doesn't belong in God's world. Now, for the world in general, this is good news. Maybe we could think about it this way. If there was no judgment, then no justice will be done. If there was no judgment, there would be no hope for this world. The atrocities that humanity has committed through the centuries would go unpunished. Genocide and abuse and betrayal would not be addressed. Judgment is not a nice doctrine for people who are powerful and comfy and I think that's why we don't like it It is a glorious reassuring doctrine for those who have been harmed and oppressed justice will be done Corruption and sin will be shaken from the face of the earth So in one sense judgment is a good and reassuring truth Who doesn't want the world to be free of evil? The issue for me and you is that if judgment will be done, if God will shake sin from the world, then me and you have no hope. There's no hope for any of us. The Bible says that we have all sinned, all thrown down the shovel and built on the sand. When Jesus returns to judge the world, we will have no place in a world filled with His goodness. We leveled with one another, we'd both admit that there are things in us that we hope never, ever see the light of day. We are so aware of our brokenness. And if God is truly good, if he is truly committed to flushing away with a storm all the broken mess of this world, then we have a serious problem. In other words, if Jesus doesn't intervene, then there's no hope for the world. If God doesn't judge, the world is hopeless and broken. We are stuck, but the parable is good news from bad news. The parable shares that Jesus brings life from death, hope from despair, because He is solid ground. He is unshakable territory. Hebrews 12 says that we have come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so the warning that Jesus gives is that when the storm of death and judgment comes, we had better be building on Christ. You know, like the the house that stood alone on Mexico Beach, everything else around it is wrecked. Jesus is the only safe place to be on the day of God's judgment. He is the only one that can withstand the storm that is coming. The final, resounding, clear message of the parables of Jesus is this. Jesus is the only way to life. Jesus is the only way to get to God. Jesus is the only hope for our hopeless, broken world. This short story that Jesus tells is a lot of things. It's a lesson on wisdom. It's a lesson on instant gratification. It's a lesson that Jesus will never let us down. But more than anything, it is a a call to repent, to turn around. Jesus says these words to shake us from our religious coma. To make us turn to a life of wholehearted faith in Him. Jesus is a safe and steady shelter from the judgment that we deserve. He is the one who has gone through the storm already, through death and judgment, and emerged on the other side victorious. If we are in Him, If we have built our lives on Jesus, then we can rest easy. Our house is secure. It will never, ever fall. The famous song goes, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. you're listening to me speak just now, that means that it's not too late. It's still summer. You still have a chance to dig and lay a foundation on Jesus, but the storm of death and judgment is coming. God wants nothing more than for you to lay your foundation on Jesus, to build your life on Him, and to see your derelict house become a glorious Temple of the Holy Spirit. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, today is the day to hear his words and do them. To take your life and build it on the only place that will withstand the storm. He will never let you down, he will never crumble. And when everything else around you is in ruins, Jesus will remain. I'm going to ask the guys to come back up and uh, lead us in a couple of songs of worship. I just wanted to share with you a couple ways that we can respond to God's Word as we close our series on the parables of Jesus. This, let's, let's take the opportunity together to reflect. Are we really building our life on the words of Jesus, or are we like the foolish builder who here and just ditch it. It'll be fine. The storm's not coming. Let's reflect. Let's take the opportunity to repent. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, if you're aware that to you, Jesus is just a name that you say when you're praying for your friend to be healed, but not the rock that you've built your life on, well, would you in this time repent? The Bible says it just means turn around and walk in a different direction. Turn around and come to Jesus. And lastly, as we sing, let's rejoice. If we are in Christ, we are on a solid, reliable, sure foundation. We will never be swept away. Let me pray for us as we're going to worship. Lord, we are so aware of our need for you. We look at our lives and we just think, we have so often not built on the right thing. We've looked at the, the call to put our faith in Jesus and we have thrown the shovel down and walked away. Lord, I just pray for those of us who are together and listening just now. God, I pray that we would be convicted if we haven't done that. Lord, that you would bring us to a place of faith If we have spent our whole lives just saying the word Jesus, but not building on him, you would make that so clear, God. And I just pray that some today, as they hear, would do what Jesus says and build on him. But Lord, I pray for those of us who have built on Jesus, who are followers of him. I pray you would comfort us, help us to know that no matter what comes our way, Jesus is steady and sure. We praise you, God. We thank you that in Jesus alone, we have been given hope and security. We just pray now you would stir our faith for Jesus and help us to worship God as we sing out now in our living rooms, God. We pray you would make Jesus big and all of our problems very, very small. In Jesus' name, amen.